Hey everyone, welcome to the 14th episode of our mainline podcast. It is June 2nd, just before 10 a.m. here. I recorded this podcast, uh, I want to say on April 30th, so I'm now just getting around to editing it and publishing it. Uh, thankfully, I am out of school for the summer, so now that I don't have to worry about class. I'll have a lot more time on my hands. Um, that means more interviews, more news podcasts, more articles. I'm very excited for that opportunity. This week, we had Mr. Pat on with us again, and then Mr. Pat brought Luke Bradley on with him. So thanks again to Pat for getting another guest for the podcast. Luke Bradley was a police officer with the Royal Ulster Constabulary. And if you don't know, that was the National Police Force of Northern Ireland. It was disbanded in about 2001, and they saw a good amount of service during the Troubles. And if you don't know what the Troubles were, it was this uh, period of low-level insurgency from about the late 1960s to the 1990s, which saw fighting between Catholic uh, militias, so the Irish Republican Army and Ulster militias, or as some might call them, loyalist militias. And those groups fought amongst each other, and they also fought with the police. And Luke gets into that um, for a good part of this podcast. It's actually mainly what we talk about in this. And when Luke got out of the police, he went on to do security work both at home and overseas. Um, he's a close protection instructor. He has a lot of experience. Unfortunately, we didn't get into his overseas work or instructing in this one, I didn't have the time, sadly, but we will have him on again because, again, he has a lot of experience. It's very interesting, and I want to hear what all he has to say. But um, I should note, Luke Bradley is not his real name. His name has been changed because he wanted to protect his identity. So there's some bleeps uh, throughout the recording, and um, that's basically us bleeping out his name. I hadn't realized that he wanted to change his name um, until after we had done the recording, and I should have asked him about that, but whatever. His, his name is bleeped out, so he is under Luke Bradley for this podcast. And before we get started, this is sponsored by Mission Essential Gear, your one-stop combat shop, home of the Thules, the tactical handbook for unit leaders, available at megearco.com and Amazon as well. Also check out the Freelancers, a media and research collective dedicated to covering modern conflicts with a soft focus on foreign fighters. Find them on Twitter at CBT Freelancers, Instagram at Freelancers Blog, and their website at freelancersconflictblog.wordpress.com. Also check out Fortress International, a veteran-owned research and analysis firm based near Washington, D.C. I recently wrote an article for them about the potential use of microwave weapons at the U.S. Embassy in Cuba. You can find them on Twitter and Instagram at Fortress underscore INT and their website at FortressLLC.org. And lastly, check out the LARP Bazaar, which is a tactical gear and apparel company started by myself and two other Marine veterans we recently put out some Wubby hoodies in the experimental urban T-block camo that was used by the Marine Corps in the late 1990s to um, be used as a camouflage in urban combat. It's a very unique pattern. Uh, not everybody's cup of tea, but whatever, we think it's pretty cool. So if you want to get one of those, head over to LARPBazaar.com. And with that being said, we'll get into the podcast. All right, so I got Mr. Pat Rafino with me, and how are you guys doing? That was very fast. All right, and uh, real quick, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm based, uh, as you probably can tell, over in Northern Ireland, which is the uh, smaller island to the west of England, Scotland, and Wales. Um, I'm a former police officer, uh, served during the Troubles here. We had 30 years of conflict, and uh, for part of that time, I was a uniformed police officer, and then I entered Special Operations Branch. I was a, a Tier 1 covert surveillance operator working against Republican, that's not Republican in American sense, but Irish Republican terrorists and Loyalist terrorists. So that's from both sides of the community, from the Protestant and Catholic community. So I worked against them for about 16 years uh, after leaving, I studied for a little while and then entered the private security sector, 
pretty much do two things. One, I do what's called backwatching, close protection medic cover for the media overseas, including uh, running hostile environment and first aid training courses to prepare them to go. Uh, and I do the same for the NGO community, mostly faith-based organizations. So I do hostile environment training and I also security manage projects. So mixture of stuff home in Northern Ireland, stuff in England and overseas. Also I continue to state, teach uh, uh, surveillance, mobile foot tracking, uh, counter anti-encounter surveillance to um, a mixture of people working in the circuit and also to uh, uh, sort of like-minded special forces units uh, around the world. Okay. And so you grew up in Northern Ireland during the Troubles as well, right? Yep, I did indeed, yep. Okay. And what, um, what sort of effect did that have on your childhood growing up? Um, probably bizarre to other people uh, because you sort of grew into a civil war and uh, there was a terminology, you know, the sort of a acceptable level of violence. But as a, as a young a young boy, uh, soldiers on the street and armed police officers, it's all quite exciting. So I can't say for one second that it had any sort of major trauma. Uh, probably a lot of people in Northern Ireland are tra traumatized by the troubles. Uh, some of it to a lesser extent, some of it to a greater extent, but I, I don't say for one minute that it was, uh, for me, a particularly difficult time. My, my father was shot in... Um, in 1972, he was shot a mistaken identity for a police officer. Uh, he come leaving uh, the, the hospital that he worked in and uh, nearly didn't survive the event. Uh, intensive care for a long period of time afterwards, but fortunately he did survive. Uh, so he was mistaken for a police officer. And my father was not involved in the security forces or in any sort of paramilitary unit. So did that have any, um, did that give you any sort of motivation into joining the police or is that something you already wanted to do? I would say, I would say it probably did. Uh, I would say though, uh, my early, uh, my earlier sort of design. Okay, there you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so um, yeah, I mean, I think that incident actually, uh, well, I, I was always interested in the military, but that incident probably propelled me away from the military because my, my mother sort of uh, semi-pleaded with me not to sort of uh, join the military. At, at that stage, if you joined the British Army, you would have come over to serve in, in Northern Ireland. So I think she was concerned about uh, some other incident occurring involving myself. Uh, it's a bit strange now because joining the police, I was here during the Troubles full time, where if I'd been in the military, I would have come over for anything from four four months to two-year tour. So actually, I ended up probably in, in more risk. Plus also in the military, you lived in a fortified base, whereas as a police officer, you had to drive home and live live in a normal residence. Yeah. Did you, Um, I know you said your dad wasn't in the security service, but did you have any sort of family background in law enforcement or the military? Yeah, a, a few, few uh, well, our you know older relatives that had served in the military in the Second World War. Then I had uh, two uncles, uh, two brothers of my father, who both were uh, part-time police officers. Okay, gotcha. And what year did you join the police? I joined in September 1977. Okay, and is that? Um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not familiar with how it works in Northern Ireland. So is that like a local police or is that um, more of like a national thing? Yeah, yeah. It's very, very different to the American police, uh, which I've had a lot of connection with. So in Northern Ireland, at that stage, a population probably about a million and a half people. Uh, we had all told we had 14,000, just over 14,000 police officers. That was regular police officers, which was I, what I was in full-time reserve and part-time reserve. Uh, so 14,000 police officers co cover uh, Northern our population of uh, about one and a half million. So single chief constable, assistant chief constables and down through chief superintendents right down to constable line. So just one police force in Northern. Technically, you did have a 
harbour police force, which was very small, I mean, probably numbered less than 20. And you had an airport police force, which again would have numbered less than 20. But primarily it was the Royal Ulster Constabulary were the, the main police force for Northern Ireland. Okay. And um, what's a difference between a full-time police officer and a reserve officer? Okay. So, so a regular police officer would have then gone through training 12 to, 12 to 14 weeks, which would have been law fitness training, stuff like that. Then you went and did further training, uh, firearms, uh, you did uh, driver training, and you did communication training. So um, at a point in time, they decided they need to bolster the amount of regular police officers. So they created what was called a full-time reserve. And so people maybe who were not the exact height or maybe had you know their eyesight just wasn't up to the standard, they could join for three years so they served for three years. They were really brought on to be a security role in order to doing the gate, doing the sangers at police stations. Uh, but they did through time move for, from that. And some of them did up to 30 year service. Every three years, they got a bounty and then there's, there, they, could be, could, they could continue on for another three years. And in fact, the majority of full-time reserve guys that I ever met were excellent officers, really, really good officers, conscientious. Then part-time, were people, conscientious people within the community who volunteered to go out uh, after their normal job uh, and, and come out with regular police officers, full-time police officers on the ground. So I, I encountered many of them, and some of them lived in extremely hazardous locations. Many of them uh, were targeted for assassination, undercar booby trap bombs, shot at their, at their homes. So they were incredibly brave officers. Gotcha. Um, and one thing I, I wanted to ask before I forget how I think we have a different perception, right? Um, just because we only hear so much from like Northern Ireland, you know, I mean, most people hear the troubles, right? And they just think like full blown, like civil war, like counterinsurgency. So I guess my question would be how much of what a normal police officer does would be what we consider to be like actual normal police work versus like sure. Sure. operating in like a counterinsurgency sort of okay. scenario. Yeah, I mean, the police force uh, during the troubles of 30 years from 69 uh, for, uh, until 99, police force was a sort of paramilitary force. Uh, everybody was armed with a sidearm and then when you went out on patrol, many carried uh, a submachine gun or uh, a, a rifle, semi-automatic rifle and automatic rifles. So the, the police, all police officers were trained to a certain extent to deal with, with terrorism. Think about Northern Ireland, there were various hotspots, uh, Londonderry, Stroke Derry up in the north, West Belfast in, in, in Belfast and North Belfast, uh, South Armagh going down towards the border area. Uh, East Tyrone, these were all hot spots for IRA uh, activity. So in those areas, uh, police officers were at greater risk, uh, usually targeted in ambushes, uh, undercar or undercar booby trap bombs, uh, bombs and culverts underneath roads. And uh, so there were some areas which were completely no-go. No the British Army, they were given supremacy in certain areas, the likes of South Armagh, they were given supremacy. And so policing was very dependent on going out with a, a, a military patrol and helicopter or foot patrol uh, to carry out your duties. Uh, so, so it was a it was a fraught time. Um, was it sort of full civil civil war like you see in the Balkans? No, no, it wasn't. But uh, if you take a, a populace of you know just over a, a million people, uh, you know three three over three thousand people died during the troubles. Uh, Two thirds of them were murdered by uh, the IRA, the Irish Republican Army. The majority were murdered by them and then the remainder by loyalists. Uh, the police and security forces accounted for uh, for a number of hundred uh, deaths, but the major protagonist was the Irish Republican Army. Uh, the problem is for a lot of Americans is that uh, the connection with Ireland and connection with Irish people and the IRA and Sinn Féin were good propaganda they were good to go to america and make out that we were sort of living in cobblestone streets in you know thatch cottage thatch roof cottages and that the british 
were our taskmasters. There's nothing further from the truth. Uh, the major terrorists and the major murderers in Northern Ireland were the Irish Republican Army, followed by the Loyalists. Now, the Loyalists would have claimed to be loyal to the Queen, but they were mostly loyal to drug dealing and uh, racketeering and things like that. So, there's a, you know, at the end of the day, war can be won by fighting, but it can also be won by propaganda. And Sinn Féin and the IRA were very good at their propaganda in America and places, cities like Boston, New York, where the Irish, large Irish uh, community who thought they were giving to a justifiable cause, but actually they weren't. They were giving to uh, murder and mayhem in, in Northern Ireland, which, which occurred for 30 years. And it was really only the, the Colombian three, the three IRA terrorists which were captured in Colombia, who were out training FARC in um, how to use uh, mortars improvised mortars in an urban environment. That's really when the Americans started to caught on that or catch on that the IRA and, and, and Sinn Féin, they were, they were just terrorists. No such a thing as a good terrorist and a bad terrorist. Okay. And um, one thing I wanted to ask is I hear, from what I hear, Sinn Féin is like the political wing, or at least was the political wing of the IRA. Is that a fair description? Yeah. Are they? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. No, they, 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 they remain so, but uh, uh, they, they are, in fact, a puppet to the IRA. The IRA still control Sinn Féin and, and control the sort of political end. But yes, you're right. Sinn Féin are their sort of political front who, even to this day, are unapologetic about the suffering they caused about the new warning bombs, about strapping people into vehicles and then making them drive into permanent uh, army checkpoints and then detonating them. Uh, they make no apologies for disappearing people and executing them. Uh, and, they, and they still glorify terrorists who, who destroyed this country economically and destroyed an awful lot of lives as well. And what was the kind of switching topics here? What was the... Um... I guess, hiring process for the police force? Yeah, how, well, how does that hiring process, yeah, at, at that stage would have been, you know, application form. You would have then, uh, there would have been vetting carried out uh, to see that, you know, you weren't sort of connected in these sort of terrorist organizations. Uh, there would have been uh, two, two different medicals, your own doctor's medical, police medical, uh, an exam to, to get in, um, and, and then if, if, if you were successful with the board, you would be forwarded then to start training. Uh, in those days, it was called a depot because it was very much on a military lines. We have raced to demilitarize the police force here, where sadly the terrorists till, still are, are uh, operating. So we've rushed to do that, to be all sort of touchy-feely and uh, fluffy. But it was, I, I was effectively, it was like entering a military force we were training in a depot. We did lots of marching, all, all of that type of stuff. And uh, you then were on probation for two years. You, you underwent uh, training every month. And then at the end of two years, you did complete a course. And if you passed all of that, you were confirmed in the rank of constable. So it, it effectively took two years to become a police officer. Okay. And what at the point that you're a constable, do you kind of just start off right off the bat patrol duties or yeah yeah you, you, you go you go to a station and obviously you'll be chaperoned and go out with much more senior police officers and um, uh you, you basically after you've completed two years uh, although it usually takes a little bit longer you're then able or you're allowed to apply for specialized units be that criminal investigation fingerprint branch community affairs or to go into the special branch or any of the special operations branches. And so they, they tend to sort of look for somebody a little bit more mature than if you joined at 18 and you were now 20, you tended to look for people maybe more sort of 23, 25 mark. Okay, gotcha. And did you, you're from Belfast, right? Yeah, originally from Belfast, yeah. Did you stay around the Belfast area when you were a constable? No, no. First, first three years, I went to South Armagh, which was then the most hazardous place in, in Northern Ireland. The roads had not been driven by police officers and vehicles for 10 years. 
And so I went, I went to that environment where you're very much reliant to say on the army to go out on the ground. And they would do clearance operations where they would uh, clear clear roads, clear culverts to see that there was no uh, um, you know, bomb placed in them. Uh, and so I spent I spent three years down there, uh, about about half of it in a in, a, in an anti terrorist unit, which was formed by a, quite a, a, a forward thinking inspector and the then chief constable Sir Ken Newman. And this unit was called the Bestbrook Support Unit, and we patrolled South Armagh in. For the first time in 10 years, we patrolled in vehicles. So it was quite an exciting and lively time and a lot of a lot of incidents occurring. And fortunately, we eluded most of them. And uh, so that, that was the first three years. Then I came to the city. And as far as you can say, West Belfast was normal policing. It really wasn't. You went out in two armoured Land Rovers with a, a, a third uh, military armoured Land Rover in between your two armoured Land Rovers. The reason for that was there was um, a major threat from RPG-7s. So uh, the, the, the in-between landover, the military landover, had what we call roof sentries. They had two soldiers out through the roof who then could guard our flanks. And so when you went out on patrol, out on doing your police duties, there was three landovers, two police ones, uh, and a military one in the centre uh, with a group of soldiers and armed plus an additional weapon, either a submachine gun or a rifle. So four, five police officers in each Land Rover and the same in the military Land Rover. So quite a sizable patrol going out in the ground, plus also carrying a federal riot gun with baton rounds because there was often uh, quite a lot of crowd disorder situations. You had to take very good care before you went any calls because often there were setups. So the, the calls were always checked out before they actually dispatched police to them. When you arrived, you always reverse parked against a wall and get out of the vehicle that way because there had been an incident in where I'd been stationed where they'd driven in and nosy parked and they opened the back of the land over towards a, a, a block of apartments or block of flats and... Uh, they were shot with a, an M60 machine gun, which had been stolen, one of a consignment had been stolen from America and shipped over to here. So, yeah, it, it was it was fraught. You had to be on your toes all the time. Um, yeah, I was not expecting uh, RPG-7s, but I've seen, I've seen a few pictures on the internet. Like, I've seen one uh, with the guys that have, like, an M2... 50 cal like mounted in like an anti-aircraft yeah, yeah. posture yeah, yeah. Where, yeah. Yeah. where do these weapons yeah, you, come from yeah you had that you, they would have taken a big dumper truck and up armored it uh all armored it all around the side and the front and fitted discus to it fitted flamethrowers and they, they attacked a, a permanent uh, army checkpoint with flamethrowers with discus they dismounted and uh, did room combat through grenades and, and basically, you know, attacked through this vehicle checkpoint, killing a couple of soldiers. So, yeah, the, the, in certain areas, they were prepared to take it to you and uh, you needed to be prepared to take it back to them. Where are they getting these weapons? Or where did they get them? So, so, so yeah, so, so the, weapon, the weapons, a lot of the weapons initially, I have to say, came, came from America. We, we also had Barrett, Barrett rifles, which were stolen in America, which came over here. So there was uh, quite a, a period of time where a number of Barrett rifles were here, and that was problematic towards the army. They had the up armor, their, their body armor. Uh, but the M60s, are, uh, M60s certainly came from America. RPGs came from the Middle East. Uh, there was a strong connection between the IRA and Libya. The old expression, you know, sort of uh, your enemies, my friend type thing was so the, 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 the Gaddafi had a real hatred of the British because they, they allowed the Brits allowed the American aircraft to refuel in England before they bombed. If you remember the incident where they bombed his tent and, and he survived this a, a number of years ago after the, you know, the uh, bomb on board the, the American uh, flight that came down over Scotland. So, um, Libya supplied a, a huge amount towards the latter end. Shipments coming in, uh, in by sea 
And so the, uh, that's when Semtex started to come in. That was all brought in from Libya. Uh, the Balkans, stuff came in from the Balkans from the civil war there because there was a lot of smuggling of drugs, uh, contraband coming from Eastern Europe, through Western Europe and into the UK. So a mixture of America, the Balkans and uh, Libya and M Middle East, places like that. Okay. Did you guys do a lot of work trying to intercept shipments of contraband or was it more sort of a direct action yeah. against actual? Yeah, no, no. I mean, certainly from uh, my perspective, uh, the, 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 the saddest thing is that uh, I would say the Royal Oscar Stabry were the leading police force in the world at, at that time and, and were the sort of spearhead of a lot of tactics in relation to gathering intelligence through human sources, through technical sources. And then from that, exploiting intelligence, we were very good at exploiting intelligence. And what I mean by that is if, if, a, if a source tells you where there's height of weapons, you know, the sort of policy nowadays, and certainly in the UK and here, would be probably to just go and hit it. The, the problem with that is that then you jeopardize the source. Whereas in our days, we were less risk you know we weren't risk averse we would have we would have went and exploited that and tried to move that weapon or weapons or explosive on at least once or twice more so it moved it away from the, the, the source who knew where it was thus protecting him now the risk with that is that the thing goes missing and, and goes bang but uh i i we were we were i would say the sort of experts at doing that and Sinn Féin and Ways have done their absolute damnedest to prevent the lessons that the police learned here from being passed on to like-minded countries and like-minded individuals to deal with their terrorist uh, uh, situation. Yeah. Um, I guess before I forget, now that you bring up Sinn Féin again, are they, they're not a majority party in parliament, are they? Well, they're, 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 they're sort of the second biggest party in, in, in Northern Ireland. Um, people have short memories, uh, sadly, and when it comes to politics. And it's also, it's, we have a really weird uh, government situation in Northern Ireland where we don't have an opposition party as such. So the two major parties are the Democratic Unionist Party, which comes from the Protestant community. They're the largest party and the second largest is Sinn Féin, but both of them are quite radical parties. So they brought radical parties to the centre of politics, and that's what we get. We get a big mess. And the more liberal, the more sort of conservative, um, less sort of radical parties from both the Catholic and Protestant community are just, they've been decimated. So we have two sort of quite radical parties running our country, uh, you know, and, and you know, if one one of them stand, steps away from it, the whole government falls. And that's what we're looking at at the moment. We've, we've moved through, the last 20 years, we've moved through one crisis after the other. The problem is because nobody sort of seems to get that this is a long war for Sinn Féin and the IRA. You know, politics is only part of their their campaign. And they, they don't actually intend to share government. They want to run this country. They want to run the whole of Ireland. They want the country to be united. But they're also the saddest thing is that the IRA are the largest criminal enterprise in Western Europe, in the UK and Western Europe. And nobody seems to get that. They just seem to think, yeah, well, they're they're all quiet. They've gone away, but they haven't gone away. Uh, and, uh, and then we have what's called dissident Republicans. We've got splinter terrorist groups coming out of the paramilitary, uh, Republican paramilitary. And so they're still carrying out a, a campaign, undercar booby traps, shooting, they've murdered a number of police officers, some prison officers as well. And the Loyalist Front, they're just mafia godfathers, destroying their, their, their communities, the working class Protestant communities with drugs, racketeering, prostitution. So, so you know, I, I don't want to sound totally jaundiced, but we do have a, a mess here in ways that... Some of it's been swept on onto the carpet to keep bombs from you know going into in, into England. I mean that's really what brought us to the uh, the sort of uh, negotiating table because uh, the IRA from South Armagh planted bombs in the heart of London in the, the financial heart, and the British government sort of caved into that. Uh, and 
you know, because it cost so much. But they, did, they didn't so much mind. The Brits didn't so much mind bombs in Northern Ireland, but they didn't want them on the mainland. So mm-hmm. we ended up negotiating with a bunch of terrorists who are totally un- unreconstructed. Okay. And so I knew, I knew that the IRA has these dissident factions, right? Like, I think it, there's the new IRA, there's... I yeah. think the real IRA and maybe a couple yeah. others, but are the yeah. the mainline IRA is that still in existence, or are these splinter yeah, groups that, that's, the majority? Yeah, absolutely, it's it's still in existence. They have to be a little bit careful because obviously, if they carry out too much action, that that would be in breach of the sort of ceasefire agreement. But they have they have murdered people. They carried out the biggest bank robbery. Uh, that we have ever had in 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 in, in, in Ireland, they carried out a bank robbery where they robbed a bank of close to thirty million sterling. So yeah, they, they still they are still in control, and and we discovered recently through a sort of an unrelated uh, thing that you know that Sinn Féin are just controlled by IRA Godfathers. You know, Jer- Jerry Adams may have stepped down from his position of president of Sinn Féin, but he very much still runs the whole organization he's he's the he's the godfather of it all uh despite claiming he was never in the ira sorry i was muted i didn't actually realize that he stepped down as president yeah he stepped down uh a, a number of years ago partly because i think the um the optics of it didn't really look good uh, he was a bit tainted with the past and um, you know he he has you know he he has maintained this that he was never in the IRA, which is a complete nonsense. Uh, you know, and and there've been you know allegations that uh, he was instrumental in uh, a fire bombing of a of a country hotel where uh, people who you know sort of rare dogs, you know, people who bred dogs were incinerated. That was in the nineteen seventies. He, he was mentioned in connection with Jean McConville, who was a mother of about, I think, 11 or 12 children who was abducted. Uh, she was initially abducted, beaten up, released, then abducted again a few nights later, taken down south, beaten again, shot, buried on a, a, a sandy beach, and her body wasn't found for, I don't know, 20, 30, 30 years. Uh, total destruction. She was a widow uh, to start off with. So he, he has been named in the Boston tapes as being the orchestrator of that, but he's denied all of this stuff, and uh, you know he's pretty much Teflon. Um, there, 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 there's there's not been anybody able to sort of lay a blow as such on him. But that's that's the sort of individuals we have on both sides of the community in power here. Which uh, it was just you know it's 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 bizarre because you guys talk about corruption sort of in, in America. We're talking about major terrorists who are in our government. And it's it's a very uncomfortable place to be because those sort of people should have been in, in jail uh, and certainly not in, in in the political class. They shouldn't be anywhere near politics, but they are. And this may be reaching a little bit, but back when you were on the force, was Jerry Adams or I guess any other high uh, high level leadership on your guys's radar? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, okay. I, 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 absolutely. He wasn't a target of the surveillance team I was in, but he was the target of others. Yeah, absolutely, he was on, on the radar. He was a member of uh, the Army Council. So the Army Council's uh, seven-man uh, team of people who effectively, they decide whether you live or die, or they decide you know, whether an operation, a terrorist operation goes ahead or not. Okay, and... Is there a lot of tension between the IRA and these dissident groups, or do they kind of just stay out of each other's hair? Yeah, uh, I'd say there is an element of it. There is a element, and, and, and some of the dissident groups, you know, they keep coming up with different names, or the media call them different things. I think they're being called the new IRA now. The joke was that they were not, I uh, can't believe it's not butter IRA, but something like that. But they, they, they um, yeah, there would be tension between them. Um, some of them are disaffected individuals, both economically, they've not sort of benefited from the peace process. There are younger guys, also people who were, well, we wanted a united Ireland and the, and the Belfast Agreement didn't give us a united Ireland, so we're going to actually fight on for one. 
So yeah, they 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 there would be tension between them uh, and the and the IRA. Um, to what extent? I, I, I'm not I'm not completely aware of that, but I, I would I would believe that that would be so. Okay, and back when you were an officer, was the political landscape similar to how it is now? And if so, did that have an effect on the work you guys were able to do? Yeah, I mean, the, the political landscape was sort of pretty much the same. You know, the saddest fact is in Northern Ireland, the two communities, the two working class communities were the ones that suffered the most. Uh, suffered at the hands of terrorism and the Godfathers, but also suffered economically, uh, also suffered from lack of good schooling, jobs, employment, all of those type of things. So that, 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 that pretty much continues on. In fact, it's more sort of into the, the Protestant community now, the Protestant working class community just got, has been left behind. Very, very few uh, young men from the Protestant working class community go to university, you know, go past 16 years of age in school. There are very few job opportunities for them. So when they look at uh, the, the local godfathers who are running around, uh, you know, with muscles from going to the gym every day, wearing designer clothes, not, not having to work, having all the drugs they want, that's what that's who they emulate. So that's what they are attracted to. And so you just get history repeating itself. There's an, a, an expression that when the troubles occurred here, the middle classes went to the golf club and they didn't return. And, and that's pretty much the case. I'm not saying that the middle classes weren't totally affected, but they were affected in a lesser way than the working class communities. Because those working class communities, you know, they were living cheek and jowl, you know, close to each other attacking each other with petrol bombs, rocks, paint bombs, and, and then worse, you know, attacking each other with firearms. So, yeah, it's um, the, the, the situation here, you know, it's a bit sad that we sometimes have people here to, to lecture them on peace and reconciliation. We don't have peace and reconciliation in the two working class communities. We still have a hatred, and I see that from working on the ground with the media. They both hate each other as much as they did during the Troubles. The difference is there's not as much bloodletting, but the hatred's still there. And until you take that hatred out, there's always going to be tension and trouble in Northern Ireland. Okay. And do Protestants and Catholics, are they, do they sort of live separate from each other or are they a yeah. little and, and integrated? Yeah, and cer certainly they live separate from each other in, in working class areas and they don't normally go to the same school. So there's Catholic schools and then the state Protestant schools. Now that we are starting to get integrated schools, but they tend to be mostly more for middle class kids. We do have a lot of uh, sort of the posh or the the, the 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 better grammar schools, which would have been traditionally Protestant schools. You get Catholic kids going to that for for the education, but generally in the working class community. If you're a Protestant, you go to a Protestant school. If you go to, if you're Catholic, you go to a Catholic school, which is run by the Catholic Church. And the problem is that you know people are not being exposed to each other. And, and as, as I said before, if you look at the economic situation in the early seventies, late sixties, early seventies, the Protestant and, and the Catholic working class community were no different. They were both deprived in many ways. They 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 lived in cramped housing. Uh, you know, work, worked in, in jobs that were hazardous. There was a lot of air pollution in Belfast. And so, you know, the, the, the small middle class community then, which was mainly Protestant, thrived. But the working class communities were, 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 were living in very, very difficult conditions and difficult times. Okay. And was there a decent amount of Catholic officers on the force or did they mostly stay away from security no, services no no there, there wasn't i i think I, I i'm not 100 sure but i think around about nine percent now this is the nonsense and the propaganda that uh Sinn Féin would put out uh that, that it was a protestant force and we didn't welcome catholics and nothing further from the truth because even if there's only one percent in the force that shows that there's, there's some allowance for, for catholics to be there it wasn't a bigoted force at all. I serve, I mean, I, my, my, my grandfather was from the Catholic community, my, my grandmother on my, my, uh, my mother's side, my, my uh, grandfather was Catholic, my, my grandmother was Protestant. So I have both sort of sides flown through me being brought up probably as a, as a Protestant, although in a home that had no interest in politics, no interest in 
you know, the, the religion of, of politics. And uh, so I serve with, with Catholic officers right, right through in the Special Operations Branch. I would have trusted them with my life and they with me. So the reason why Catholic officers didn't join, it was so risky to join. If they came from a working class community, to go back into that community where the IRA were strong was, was a risk, you know, where you, you, you could you'd be shot, your family would maybe be punished for that. So that's, what the, that's why. And that's continued to this day. We just recently, a Catholic part-time uh, female officer, uh, a bomb was discovered just a couple of weeks ago. It was in some sort of incendiary type bomb discovered beside her vehicle on the side the rear left-hand side where she puts her child into the vehicle. This device, if she'd have driven off, would have blown up, would have put incendiary, uh, uh, put flames through her vehicle, and, and it would have actually struck her child before it struck her. And that was a Catholic officer living in a Catholic area. So we, we continue to have this level of intimidation by, by, by Republicans uh, to try and dissuade, because you've got to remember what their, their idea is to destroy the state to make the state unworkable. And so they, by bombing, they make the economy unworkable, by killing police officers, they put people into fear. Uh, but, but you know, that's the whole point of, of, of terrorism. It's to terrorise the state. And that's and they, they continue to do that to this day. They use politics now mostly to achieve that. Okay. If I mute myself real quick, I live right next to a train station and it's, on the way, I don't know if you guys can hear it, but I did read about um, that bomb that was planted actually this morning. I didn't realize a officer was Catholic, but I think the new IRA actually claimed responsibility for that. Yeah, there's, there's been, there's been, yeah, we've had two sort of uh, incidents a couple of weeks ago. This, uh, say, the female part-time officer, and then I think uh, in the last couple of days, uh, police officers. Uh, and a living in a Protestant area, their vehicles were, were torched, their vehicles were set on fire in their driveway. And that was by the loyalist community to intimidate them uh, because we've got this sort of issue at the moment where uh, as part of Brexit, um, we are sort of in Northern Ireland slightly separated from mainland UK and the border could be right down the Irish Sea rather than the border where it is at the moment, which is between Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland. So. The, the loyalist community are sort of incensed and up in arms. They see that as a step towards a united Ireland. Uh, and, and obviously they don't want that. Okay. Um, and I actually did want to ask you about this at some point, but I guess we could do it now. What's going on right now in Northern Ireland? I'm The only reason I know anything is happening is because I have you on Facebook. Our media isn't talking yeah. about it at all. Yeah. Well, the reality is, I think during the 30 years of troubles here, that was probably at a point in time, you know, from 1969 to 1990, that was a point in time where coming to Northern Ireland was sort of easier than going to some places around the world. Now the media has incredible reach all around the world. And it's like everything in life, you know, a, a bar is fashionable for a period of time and then some other bar opens and it becomes fashionable. Northern Ireland is not fashionable. I mean, the, the, the Middle East in, in relation to Israel and the West Bank is not fashionable with the media at the moment. So, so stories get dropped, things get dropped. So, so technically now, um, and also you're competing, you know, the whole big story at the moment is obviously COVID-19. So we've had a little bit of rioting recently by the loyalist community, but also by the Republican community, by dissonance. So the riding has been mostly centred around Belfast, some up north in London, Derry, Stroke Derry, but it's been mostly around Belfast. Rocks, petrol bombs, that type of thing been thrown uh, at police. So the police are always on the, in, in the centre, but it's all to do with the fact that uh, Boris Johnson seemed to make some sort of arrangement or agreement that Northern Ireland isn't technically out of the EU, this, this sort of, the land border is no longer a land border. It's sort of down the Irish Sea. So it sort of causes problems with moving goods uh, from mainland into Northern Ireland. So that, that, that's what people are sort of incensed and are sensed about. But also, you know, we've got a, a major paramilitary organisation, uh, a loyalist one, uh, not too far away from where I live. And they 
are majorly involved in the drugs uh, trade and the police have been targeting them recently. So that they're, they're trying to use this Irish sea border to push back. So they're, they're actually, they're, they're, they're using it as an excuse that what they're trying to do is target the police to try and stop them going after their drug dealing. So we, we, we have, you know, I, I don't want to paint the picture that this place is a complete mess, but it's not, but it's got an underbelly of mess and an underbelly of not normal living. I mean, when I leave here, it's like we, we, we refer to the army, an army rucksack as a bergen. When I leave here, metaphorically, it's like I'm taking a, bur a bergen off my back. When I leave here, when I go to England, Scotland, Wales, to America, I don't, I don't have to look under my car every morning. I don't have to position myself in a pub where I can sort of cover exits. I don't have to carry a personal protection weapon anymore. I don't have to be worried if I hear some noise in the, in the night. Is that someone outside? Now, I, you know, I'm, I'm long gone from the police, but they're still potentially a threat against me, and they have, a, they have launched attacks against former police officers. So I, I don't really live in a totally normal society like leafy, leafy suburbia in south of England. It's not like that here for me. And so I, I love to get out of the country, and ultimately I probably am going to live in the next few years mostly out of the country because of this. I, you have to look underneath your car every morning to see if there's an undercar booby trap bomb attached. It's draining. It, it, it just really is draining. It's not the life that I want to live. I sort of thought after the peace agreement, all that nonsense would be over, but it's not. Yeah, yeah. You know, obviously, me and Pat don't have to live like that, and most people here don't. So we can't, we can't relate. I imagine that's. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, less, less it's, an ideal. It's a, yeah, it's not an ideal. Yeah. Um, and you've been doing work during these riots, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I um, for for quite a number of years, I've, I've worked for the media. I started off doing it here. Um, there was a period of time uh, where there was a dispute over a, a march. Uh, a parade and so there was a lot of rioting so I, 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 I go out with the media I act as a security advisor, their close protection, they refer to the term backwatcher medic, carry medic kit, kit. I, I you know, take ballistic helmet with me body armor, ballistic plates, Nomex long johns if it's you know, sort of winter time and also a petrol bomb threat, I'm not armed you don't, you don't work with the media armed you go out and you effectively advise them and so I started off doing that and with the BBC. And then from that, I started work with investigative journalists. So there's a number of major investigative programs for the BBC. And I started working with them, uh, covert filming, surveillance, tracking people, helping with investigations. So they'd be doing an investigation into some major player, some major uh, criminal. Uh, and so I'd assist them with getting the covert footage for the, the, the documentary. And then they usually do what's called a doorstep, which is confrontation on camera. And so whenever I did the first one, I was told there was something like a 30% chance of getting this guy. So I used surveillance. We followed him and we doorstepped him and successfully doorstepped him because we set him up through surveillance to get him in a, an environment where he couldn't drive off. And so we doorstepped him, even though it says doorstep, we don't do it at their house. We do it somewhere out when they're in pretty neutral territory on their own. And then the, the reporter will confront them and the camera person there. And so we move from a, a covert surveillance role into a close protection role because sometimes they will, they will attack the, the journalists. Mostly they try to attack the camera, uh, the, the, whoever's filming. And, and sometimes what we do is we, um, we do a wide shot. We use small cameras and we do a wide shot of the confrontation uh, on camera if that's safe to do so. so I've done about 170 plus of confrontations of individuals over the years, worked on uh, a, a huge amount of um, investigative journalism programs. And I say then also do the back watching when there's trouble there. But the last number of years, there's been less rioting in the summertime. So it's less work for me. That's a positive thing in one sense, and maybe a negative as regards uh, earning money. Okay. So it's not uncommon for riots to happen then. No, it's like a tap. You can, you can turn them on here and turn them off. 
whenever it suits them, uh, both both godfathers and both the communities can turn them on and turn them off. Uh, there seems to be a, a group of young guys coming through who are quite up for it at the moment, certainly in the loyalist community. Uh, they're, they're keen to take it to the police. And, uh, you know, so there, there's a lot of evidence gathering done by the police to prosecute people for riotous behaviour to try and, you know, create a, uh, an image that they're, they're tra treating this seriously to stop the ratting, but there's plenty of guys still prepared to come out and throw stones at the at the armoured landovers. The armoured landovers when my day were grey. Now they're painted white. They're sort of called fluffy, so they're they're all painted white, but they're still armoured. They're still up armoured till the same way as they were back in the day. Okay. And how long were you a constable before you got to the special operations branch? I was five years in uniform, and then I did I did eleven years in uh, in, in special operations branch. Yeah, okay. sixteen years in total. Okay, and what made you want to join that? Um, I guess when I was in uniform uh, for five years, I spent a lot of time really trying to catch these people, and sometimes missed them by seconds, sometimes longer than that. So I wanted to join. A unit that have that had some effect, a real effect and real bite against these people, and that's what we had. Okay, and how was that selection process? So election process was a, a mixture of physical, uh, also seeing if you could uh, drive a car, communicate, navigate, uh, some shooting, you know, a lot of physical sort of stuff. Um, we even had a sort of a social assessment, uh, so they encouraged you to have a few beers at night time uh, to see how you behaved with alcohol, and uh, then you got up in the morning and got beasted. Like a peer review, essentially. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I think it's been dropped. I, I never thought it was a good idea because you don't, when you're on duty, you may, when, when you're on an operation, you may go into a pub but you would not be getting drunk in a pub. It wouldn't be sort of wise to do so. So you don't really need to see if people, how people act with alcohol in, in them, you know, uh, but it was some psychologist or a psychiatrist came up with the idea and, and it, they ran it for a, for a few years. And um, on, on my course, on my assessment or selection, whatever you want to call it, I was, I was avoiding alcohol. And so I got actually pulled about this and it was, along with two other guys and they said that we were very quiet at night time because that's what i've been told to do be the gray man don't draw attention so um that night i i i overindulged in alcohol won a club a club push-up competition won another competition and fought one of the instructors so um after that it was good to go what sort of um what side of sort of roles did you guys play in special operations? Did you do direct yeah, so action or undercover? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so so from on the surveillance side of things was obviously following uh, targets uh, in, in, in our areas. Some of that was driven by intelligence that we knew that a, an incident was going to take place. So we basically were, were out in relation to that. Some of it was more sort of almost like a fishing exercise. We went out and, uh, you know, endeavoured to pick up a, a target menu and follow them around and get, gain intelligence about them. Not, less effective. Uh, I mean, there's an expression that surveillance without intelligence is not really worthwhile because a fishing operation, you know, you could cover them day after day and they actually do nothing. Uh, so you need to really be targeted with surveillance. The surveillance is expensive. So you know, we went out in the ground and followed followed people on intelligence, and then we had we would have run with the um, with a uniform backup, like a SWAT equivalent, your sort of SWAT team guys. Uh, we used to call them the Chippendales or the, the scrapers or the knuckle draggers because they were the ones with the muscles and dragged their knuckles on the ground. So they were our backup unit, and uh, also the the UK Special Forces, the British SAS, would have supported us as well on the ground. Okay, so it sounds like you worked with those guys a decent amount then. Uh, yeah, I worked with them for 11 years. Yeah. Okay, nice. And oh, I'm trying to think. I had a question and I just lost it. 
You said you worked with them 11 years? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for 11 years. Now, is it like America, like as far as your pension, do you, do you, re do you receive like any sort of incentive or vested options and whatnot? You're pretty much you were uh, encouraged to do it at least 25 years or 30 years and then you were pensionable your pensionable age so the 30 years was a, the the best option because that delivered the the best pension so if you joined at 18 you could retire at 48 whether you're financially able to survive just purely on your pension at that stage hard would be hard to say and um, when you when people retired at 25 or 30 years they were given a commutation, so a lump sum of money, and then uh, a, pen a pension you know, per month thereafter for, for life. I I, uh, I was injured, and I en ended up going off on a medical, what's called a medical discharge, and so my pension was made up to a certain extent uh, by the extent of of the injury, and so I I, I ended up going off medically at 16 years. It was never intention. I, I was a sort of 30-year, 30-year-plus man, so I sort of was ripped out of something I loved. What was the injury, if you don't mind us asking? Well, it was, it was a mixture of things, but it was mostly damage to hearing. So I had okay. uh, loss, uh, quite, quite serious loss of high-frequency hearing. And uh, so, so I was a, a farms instructor within the team. I was a senior farm instructor. So it was sort of a, it was sort of mentioned to me that it, it wasn't good that I'd be around loud bangs and then obviously wearing an earpiece. Uh, our earpieces then emitted white noise constantly and you could have an earpiece in for, I don't know, uh, you know, depend how long you were on the ground, hours and hours every day. So. My, my hearing was just depreciating, depreciating, and they said that if I continued to do both of those things, my, my hearing would be destroyed. And I was, you know, early 30s at that time. So um, it wasn't it wasn't a it wasn't a pleasant sort of parting, I have to say. It wasn't uh, wasn't part of the plan. But uh, it, it, you know, it, it, it happened and that, and that was it. There was nothing much I could do about it. Okay. And so, did you guys have a decently high operation tempo? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, uh, we, we we did a lot of CTRs, close target reconnaissance, and you know, there were nights that we were out every single night. So the the, the tempo was high because there was that much so so much terrorist activity taking place, and and uh, you know, sort of it's a misunderstanding by people that you know. You send out one person in one car covering something. That the reality is that's not true. You hear that now when you know, sort of uh, terrorists sort of slip through the net in mainland UK. You know, you know, from a jihadi sort of background, and people go, "Oh, why weren't they covered by surveillance?" Well, you know, there could be twenty thousand people in the UK that are potential targets, and so. You know, the people don't understand you need a full team to cover one individual. It's not sort of one invisible car co covering one person. So we have a finite amount of surveillance team. So, yeah, the tempo, the tempo was very high, plus the quality of the operations. You know, you sort of hear stuff, you know, third third hand now. I don't know the 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 extent of the operations would have been as good as back then. You know, you're, I think you're born for a time. So I, I certainly lived through a period and worked through a period where there was a lot of stuff happening. Okay, got it. Um, and I do want to ask you about all the work you did. I think you did some work in Libya, right? And I know you were in Iraq. Yeah. Um, it looks yeah. like you went a lot of places. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. I'm running out of time here, but I'm glad I got to ask you everything about your experience in the police in Northern Ireland. Sure. Um, I definitely want to have you on again because I think there's a lot, a lot more we could talk about as far as your work overseas goes. Sure. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty much all I have for you right now. Pat, do you have anything else? Yeah. No, obviously with someone like you, we could talk for hours upon hours. I'm glad we got to break down some of your experience pre going overseas essentially because I think the work you've done and just your experiences growing up in Northern Ireland are uh, 
definitely unique and need to be told more often. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is it is sadly an untold story, and there are many lessons that we learned. We learned the hard way. There's no manual for us. We wrote the manual as regards covert surveillance in a, a non-permissive environment. I'm not saying that boastfully, but we did. Uh, along with the army surveillance teams as well, what was called a detachment 14 intelligence, now the SRR, Special Reconnaissance Regiment. So, so we wrote the manual, but the problem is that there's been a suppression of those skills by Sinn Féin and people like that. They don't want that going to other countries because they're all sort of united in the same way of wanting to disrupt, you know, you know disrupt norm, normal living. But, but there's a lot of lessons to be learned. And you're right. I, I never imagined... I thought I'd do 30 years, leave the police, and had no clue what I was going to do after that. I have worked in over 70 countries, many of them multiple times, done some fantastic jobs of a, a par with what I did back in the day. But I, I was blessed by that. Some of it was default, some of it was designed. I can't say all of it was totally planned. Sometimes you fall into things, and sometimes you see an opportunity. And, and I, I'm one of these people to grasp that opportunity. I'm not driven by money. I'm not driven by money at all. I'm not driven by fame. I'm driven by, uh, I'm more so as I get older, by some sort of significance that you want to do something that actually impacts favorably in other people's lives. So that, that's really, that's my uh, ethos now, uh, to try and sort of make a bit of a change in some some, some other people's lives by ha helping highlight the, uh, the, 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 the situation that they're living in. I can respect that 100%. No, 100% indeed. Especially like there's a lot of ignorance, especially when working with the media at a lot of these at, of these riots, protests, whatever you want to call them. And oftentimes, because I've, I've worked them in the States and you just talk to these people and you're like, hey, dude, like, do you not get what's going on here? Like, so even yeah. if little changes like that kind of open up people's minds and whatnot, I think that's a... Uh, extremely big like big thing yeah 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 well uh pat if that's all you got um that's all i got is there any social media nope. any companies anything like that you want to give a shout out to no, I'm, I'm good. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm just uh, say at the moment, uh, things have been sort of quieter the last year because of the, the lockdowns, but my work's starting to sort of kick back in a little bit. Um, so I, do, I, I still do, do surveillance training, so I'm hoping to do some surveillance training next month um, um, and, and sort of j just to try and pick things up again and get the tempo. But I don't want the tempo to be as, as, as bad as it was before. It was a little bit too much. Uh, but I certainly want to get back to doing you know proper work and, and good work. So that, that hopefully as the lockdowns sort of ease, we'll maybe be able to do that. Okay, got it. Yeah, again, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, very interested in what you have to say. <laughs> no, it's not. It's an absolute pleasure. And I mean, I, I take my hat off to all you guys, you know, that uh, the, the Afghan experience in Iraq, because that's, you know, I, I have worked out there, and uh, but not not in the military, the same way as a lot of you know, young American uh, soldiers have. And uh, but, I've, but I've been exposed and I understand it. And uh, I, I, I'm not blowing smoke up your ass, but I've, I say I've been 70 plus, maybe nearly 100 countries. America is by far my favorite country to visit, uh, both socially as a holiday and to work in. I mean, I just absolutely love the place. And uh, I do watch how things, how the politics affect there and how there's different forces at play, but none for the benefit of the ordinary people. So I, I, I have a lot of interest in what American politics and what's going on there. And, uh, but it's by far my favorite place in the world to visit. So hopefully it's some, some not too distant future. I'll meet up with you guys in person because uh, I, do, I do come to America quite often. Yeah, I think, um, I think your perspective can offer a lot to us um, who, you know, obviously haven't experienced nearly as much as you have in, you know, your home country where you grew up, where you live, right? Sure. Um, I, yeah. I think it can provide a lot to Americans who 
um, I guess are can be naive or um, yeah, you yeah, just you definitely don't, aggressive. Yeah, you definitely don't want to go down the path of that we went down because the problem is we haven't put, truly come, come, come out of it. The, the dependency on prescription drugs for you know, things like antidepressants and stuff, the, 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 the level of antidepressants that are taken in Northern Ireland through the roof, more than anywhere in mainland UK, uh, the levels of suicide, so, so in reality, and the levels of PTSD, really, really high. So a conflict, when a conflict ends, it's great. If it, it ha well, it hasn't fully ended here, but when it ends, it's good in one sense. But there's a long period afterwards that where there, there are major, major social issues and problems. And that's sadly what we're, we're living through. So I sort of have got older. I'm not anti-war. I'm not a pacifist, but I'm sort of against unnecessary battling because I see the damage, I've seen the damage here, I see the damage here and I've seen the damage in plenty of other countries. So when people sort of want to become keyboard warriors and want to call for violence, they need to be very, very careful what they're what they're asking for. Because once it breaks loose, and they, they say a civil war is the most vicious type of civil war, where, where neighbours who would have been friendly and helpful are now killing each other, and that was a reality here. You Neighbours, because of were supposedly because of religion, we're, we're, we're killing each other. So that's just barbaric. Yeah, no, I, I get what you mean for sure. Um, and again, I would, I want to have you on again. We will have you on again, right? Just to hear, I know, appreciate that. hear about your other experiences. Very interesting. Yeah, that's okay. Guys, listen, good to talk to you both. Yeah, it was good to talk to you as well. Thank you again for coming on. Okay. Okay, God bless. All right, we'll see you around. Okay, cheers, cheers. See you both. Bye, bye, bye. All right, everyone, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I know me and Pat really enjoyed recording with Luke. It was great to hear his experiences, and we will have him on again soon because, again, he has so much more experience that we could get into, and I know it's going to be very interesting. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, suggestions, you could reach out to us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate, all one word. And with that being said, I'll see you guys around.